You're listening to Sincerely Christian, a podcast where we talk about all things Christian. I'm your host, Jacqueline Clemens, and I can't wait to share with you all the things that I've learned about living biblically in a world that is stark raving mad. Christianity is not always easy, but it is so worth it. Welcome to Season 1, An Autopsy of Untold Grace. In the seventh episode, we will examine the weight of sin and sin's consequences. In my case, sin's unexpected consequences. I'm sure you've heard the saying, you can choose your sins, but you cannot choose the consequences. We will examine that truth and much more in this episode. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I like to share uh, movies or stories that relate to what's being discussed in each episode. This is no different. So (laughs) my husband and I, a couple of nights ago, watched Forrest Gump. He talked me into watching Forrest Gump, and I'm so glad that he did. I hadn't seen it in a while, and I was reminded of just how touching and sweet and wonderful this story is. And yes, some parts are very unbelievable, but it's, it's still a wonderful story. Now, if you haven't seen Forrest Gump, Of course, I'm going to recommend that you go watch it. So Forrest Gump came out in 1994, and the main star is Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks plays a man who is sitting at a bus stop, and he's just telling parts of his life story to whoever happens to come along and sit down next to him. And that is the content for this movie. So he talks about, you know, a lot of the challenges that he overcame. Now, he doesn't talk about it in those terms, but he's sharing like when he was younger, he wore leg braces and kids picked on him, but he overcame that um, by being able to run from them very fast. And then he talks about um, joining the army and all of the accolades that he received while, you know, serving in Vietnam because, you know, he was so brave. But I guess... Basically, Forrest Gump was a man who was deemed not very smart at a young age. He had a very low IQ, but his mother was so supportive and she pushed him right along to be in classes with other kids of regular intelligence. And so she never held him back. She just let him be the best that he could be. And he goes on to achieve all of these wonderful things. Now, what I love about the story and what I had forgotten was that he had made friends with a girl named Jenny and they became friends when they were in elementary school. Forrest always has like this soft spot in his heart for Jenny, but Jenny, yes, she's his friend, but she, you know, there's not a romantic interest there. And so it's kind of this unrequited love for, you know, years and years and years and years. But Jenny, her backstory is very interesting because when she was younger, she had a father who was abusive. Because of that pain in her life, she goes on to make some really terrible choices. There are moments where she's doing drugs. There's moments where she's, you know, in these abusive relationships as an adult woman. And she just keeps making these bad decisions. From time to time, her life and Forrest's lives would intersect. You know, at one point he asked her to marry him and he says that he knows he would be a good husband. And so it's this very touching attempt on his behalf to you know, win her over. It ends with Jenny finally surprising him after they had this one like brief encounter where uh, she had come back home for a little bit. Uh, She slept with Forrest 
and then she leaves the next morning and i was and when i'm watching the movie i'm like that's so terrible i can't believe she you know she just took off the story ends with forrest he's he's actually you know in current time he's sitting on that bench and he's actually on his way to see jenny and when he goes to see jenny he learns that jenny had his son and this takes him back because you know he's worried if the the little boy has the same mental challenges and social challenges that forrest has and of course he doesn't then he learns that jenny is sick and she's not going to be able to take care of the little boy and they don't know what the virus is she ends up asking Forrest to marry her of course Forrest is like yes <laughs> and they go back to Alabama and they get married and Forrest takes care of her and his son until the the mother dies until Jenny dies and so it's this very sweet story of Forrest's unending love and Jenny's unexpected son that she gives to Forrest and this kind of look at of the consequences of her life ending when she, you know, she got this virus and died from it. So probably from drug use or being promiscuous. The movie doesn't say why she got this disease. It just says that she got the disease. So. Chapter seven, Mirror. Now I called this chapter Mirror because this is the part of my life where I had to stop and take a very hard look at the person that I was becoming, at the person that I had been, and the person that I was going to be in the future. You may have heard the expression that art is a mirror of society. That's why we like really good movies, the best movies hold up a mirror of our society, things that we're experiencing, things that we can all relate to. You walk through a museum and the truly stunning pieces of art are the ones that really resemble something painful or beautiful here in the human world. Art is moving. In my life, I found that pain and confusion is also moving. If you've ever been through anything traumatic or painful, um, you know that there's a lot of soul searching that goes on. There's a lot of um, questioning, questioning God, questioning just, you know, everything. And that's why I named this episode Mirror. Um, and the text that I chose as the opening quote is actually from Solomon, King of Israel. And it's from the book of Ecclesiastes. And it says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And I think this is probably the hardest chapter. This was probably the hardest chapter for me to write uh, because this was, um, I had mentioned in episode six that I had this climatic weekend. Well, this chapter opens with Sunday, the third day of this weekend. And then what comes along later is the consequences of this weekend. So this chapter seven is sin's reckoning in my life. It's a very, um, it's a hard story to tell, but let's dive in.
All right, here are the stories I included and why I included them. Very briefly, I ended the last episode talking about this climatic weekend, this weekend that changed the course of my life. I didn't know that as I was living the weekend, but I found out later on that the things that happened on this particular weekend would change the rest of my life. On Friday night, I had gone back to my hometown and I was hanging out with a guy named James Murphy. On Saturday night, I attended that party at my friend Ronan's house. It was for his mother. It was Moroccan themed, very fun filled night that ended with me being with a guy named Colt, who was a musician. And here is the opening of chapter seven. I pull the covers tight over my freshly showered body and try to forget the last two days. Friday at Andy's, the Moroccan birthday party, Ronan's arrest, the gorgeous musician with the appalling bedroom decor on Saturday. I am finally back in my bed and the smell of clean linens excites me. Lazy Sundays are the best. Don't you agree, Sawyer? I say, and I snuggle in close. What did you do all weekend? He asks. Been a bit of an adventure, I respond, and my sneer convinces him to stop questioning. So, you are supposed to be working out of town? That is your latest story to Miss What's-Her-Name? Sawyer smells like rain mixed with pine. Don't you remember I told you I would see you soon? The memory of the intense moment we share between Andes and that church surfaces in my mind. I did not think it would be like two days later, I say. I think you missed me. I have not stopped thinking about you all weekend. It has been one hell of a weekend, my mind says. All right. Now, what I didn't mention in episode six was, it's actually in the book, but, you know, time is limited, so I can't share all of the details of the book in the podcast or we'd be here for hours and hours, and it's already so much work just putting one of these podcast episodes together. So what I didn't mention in episode six was that uh, while I was in my hometown that weekend, um, I actually ran into my friend Sawyer and his fiance at Andy's Club. Now, I grew up in a small town, so everybody knows everybody. It was a real awkward moment of seeing, you know, a guy who I'd recently become friends with, benefits with, and his, you know, <laughs> fiance walk in. Interesting in the book. So Sunday night, I am with Sawyer. And uh, like I said, this weekend, I couldn't believe it myself. I was with three different men for the first and only time, only time in my entire life. And I had just found myself living a very crazy and promiscuous lifestyle that's going to have some consequences and I remember this distinctly in my mind on this weekend and uh like Sunday night I'm laying in bed I'm next to Sawyer and I'm thinking about this weekend and I'm I'm like you know if I ever got pregnant this would be the weekend this would be the weekend that would happen I don't know if those words curse me or or if it was just sin's consequences like playing out. But later on in this chapter, I do discover that this weekend has those consequences. The next morning I go to work, sitting at my desk at work, and I'm thinking about Sunday, and I'm thinking about how Sundays used to be my favorite day of the week. I used to love to go to church and be in God's house and be with God's people. And even though my life is steeped in sin, I still have this longing to be in God's house, to be in the church. This lifestyle, it doesn't satisfy. Promiscuity doesn't satisfy. Clubbing doesn't satisfy. The only thing my soul is longing for is to be reunited with God and his people in his church. 
there's a subheading called digression. And I'm talking about before I was a Christian, I'm talking about the guy that I was dating. And even though he called himself a Christian, he didn't act like a Christian. He had said to me at one point that he was only ever going to marry a Christian. And I thought, well, that's funny. I'm not a Christian and he doesn't live any differently than me. So that little comment that he made sort of sent me in this pursuit to find out who God was. It's funny that this guy who was claiming to be a Christian who I, I knew he, he, he didn't live. We were 19 years old and he was not living like a Christian. Um, but his comment is what propelled me to go on this quest to find out who God is. And in my pursuit, I decided that I would start going to my own church. I'm not going to get into all the details. All the details are in the book, but I will, I will sum it up and say that when I started going to church, I would, I would watch everybody. I would watch the woman sitting next to me. I would watch the person on stage. I would watch how they sang. I would watch every little detail because I was trying to decipher what this is. What is church? What is Christianity? What are these people doing? Is this real? You know, let me just read some of this. Okay. So I would sit near the back to exit if needed, but I wanted to observe everyone from the preacher to the ladies sitting next to me. I wanted to see if any of this was real or just something people did on the weekends, like going to the supermarket or to the gym. I wanted to know if God is real and if he was in this place. I observed weekly regimented services, singing, greeting, praying, more singing, and then the preacher would stand behind the pulpit. At this point, people would grab their Bibles and settle in quietly for whatever he had to say. Undistracted by Brady and his wisecracks, since this was not his church and I did not invite him, I can finally listen to the message and hear what is being said. With every word the pastor spoke, my heart would beat faster and faster. I felt like my heart was going to jump right out of my chest. I had the strangest feeling that I was exactly where I needed to be and hearing what I needed to hear. It was thrilling, comforting, and terrifying all at the same time. The words the pastor spoke were like arrows piercing my heart. Tears would fill my eyes. And when he would call people to the front to accept this invitation of salvation, I would freeze, unable to lift myself from the seat. This happened week after week for two months. By March, I had enough courage to complete a visitor card and leave it in the offering plate. The following Tuesday night, there was a knock at my parents' door, and a small group of church people stood outside. Strangely, I was alone on this particular evening. My mom and stepdad were nowhere to be found. I welcomed the two gentlemen and a lady into my home. I could sense right away that they were warm and kind people. They expressed excitement that I had been visiting the church, and I was equally excited to see them. After a few minutes, the conversation turned heavy when the lady asked me a very pointed question. She said, if you died tonight, do you think God would let you into heaven? My stomach sank. I had no answer, but I managed to squeak out a very questioning, I think so. In the moments that followed, God and his plan for my salvation were explained to me. His love and his gift were set right in front of me, and I accepted it with my whole heart. My eternity was forever changed. I was now a bona fide Christian. Okay, so that moment did change the course of my life. Now, I didn't know anything about being a Christian, <laughs> and I've, I've already talked about that extensively in previous episodes, but this was a moment of me remembering that time and how much I missed it, how much I missed God, how much I missed His church, and how far I had fallen away from 
all of these things that I loved so much. This whole chapter is about like my internal soul searching, questioning kind of, it's, I guess it's like the aftermath of war. You're just standing there and you're looking at what's left standing, what's fallen down, where do we go from here? And that's what I felt like. I was like in this transitional period in my life. And my mom comes over one morning to my apartment and she's replanting some potted plants that she had given me that I had let almost die. So as she's repotting these plants and we're having this conversation, mom, do you ever miss going to church? She leans back in her chair, wipes the dirt from her hands and says, not really. I believe church is in your heart. You do not have to go to church to be a good Christian. Don't you miss being around other Christians? No, the church your dad and I went to was full of hypocrites. Pastor Lewis was sleeping with a longtime member, Carolyn Frost. And when the pastor's wife found out, everything exploded. The news of their affair spread and Carolyn's husband eventually left her and their two children. Carolyn and the children moved to California, mom states, and wipes the back of her hand across her brow. But Carolyn has three children. She does. The youngest daughter is Brother Lewis's child. That church was overrun with scandals and scandalous people. It was not a God-honoring house of worship. I do not miss it at all. But mom, you know, not all churches are like that. Some churches have pretty good people and good preachers. Did you ever try to find another church for us to go to after that? After your dad left, I was done with church. Eli's affairs and drinking started with church people. I said it before grace. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. I have always believed church is what's in your heart. Now hand me that ponytail palm before it dies completely. Uh, I include this because part of the struggle that I had was... And still to this day is this desire to be in God's house, to be with God's people. Now, my mom had experienced what I just talked about and, and that soured her on church for the rest of her life. I mean, she is, let's see, how old is my mom? She is 67 years old and she stopped going to church uh, when I was about four years old. She had me at 20. What is that? 43 years? <laughs> 43 years. She has not been going to church. It makes me so sad that those types of things happen. And it, you know, it shapes people's perspective of church for the rest of their lives. Our hypocrisy affects everyone. A Christian's hypocrisy is used by the devil to keep people out of God's church and to keep them from fellowshipping with other believers. And I mean, I'm guilty of it. I think to some extent, we're all hypocrites in some degree. And, and I mean that with love. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're, you know, perfect, please forgive me. Um, but honestly, I don't think any of us are perfect. But I think when it comes to hypocrisy, we don't realize that the damage that we're causing could have lifelong effect and could be the difference between someone entering into eternity with God in heaven or missing out on that paradise. So we really need to, you know, like God says, love one another. And when we are loving each other, we are walking in a way that is not going to harm them by our blatant hypocrisy, by our sinful lifestyles, by giving them double messages, right? We, we profess one thing, but if we live lives that are steeped in sin, that has a consequence, that has a ripple effect. So I think one of the greatest tools that the devil has is hypocrisy, hypocrites, getting Christians to not act like Christians so fewer people on the earth 
actually become Christian. And that's a very sad, sad truth. I wonder what the statistic is. All right, we'll get more into that in chapter 12. But uh, all right, back to the story. So I might go on to say that I have always connected the church and God. They're inseparable in my mind. I've always connected the church and God. After all, is not the church God's house? My mother suggests the two are separable, but it's hard for me to see it that way. When I was young, believing in God was as natural as breathing, and going to church was a part of a Christian's life. It wasn't until after my family left the church, followed by years of my parents' endless fighting, which led to their subsequent divorce, that I stopped believing in God. I reasoned that if God is real, then all these terrible things would not be happening in my family. And in no possible way could any of this anguish begin in a holy and sacred place like the church. I was too young to experience such pain and misery and unable to see that the deficiencies resided in the people. I blamed all of the pain from my broken family on God. When I was 11, I finally concluded that God must not be real. All right. So in the next part of the story, I am talking about a night out that I have with my friend Alexander. We go out, we have some dinner, we go dancing, we come back to my apartment, he stays at my apartment, we are only friends, nothing happens, we have you know, this platonic relationship and that's it. So the next morning comes around and I wake up and I'm starving and I'm like, oh, let's go grab some, some breakfast, let's go, I'm hungry. And he just off the cuff says, what are you eating for two? And it was at that moment that the thought crossed my mind that I might be pregnant. I had had two other instances where people had suggested that I might be pregnant. One was my friend Sloan at work. She said, I had a dream that you were pregnant. And in that same conversation that I was having with my mom on my patio where she is repotting the plants that I almost let die, she mentions at the beginning of that conversation that she had a dream that I had a little girl. And so, those two comments plus Alexander's comment kind of send me over the edge. And so then I changed my mind. I'm not, I'm like, nope, I'm not hungry anymore. I just remembered I have something to do. And I kind of, you know, shuttle him out the door as quickly as I can. And as soon as he leaves, I run to my bathroom and I'm throwing on, you know, whatever clothes I can find, quickly brushing my teeth, my hair, throwing on some flip-flops, grabbing my keys and heading to the nearest pharmacy. And when I'm at the pharmacy, I grab several pregnancy tests. I give them to the cashier who is like moving so incredibly slow to the point it is agonizing. You know, my soul is in agony waiting for him to ring up these tests because I just need an answer and I need it immediately. As soon as he's finished, I take the packages and I tuck them under my arm and I run back to my house and I lock myself behind the bathroom door, even though I'm completely alone. I guess I felt like I needed the extra layer of privacy during this moment. And, you know, my ex-husband and I had tried for a long time to have a baby and we even you know, spent thousands of dollars on fertility treatments. Nothing worked. I was told, you know, in my late teens that it would be very unlikely if I ever had children because I had had so many problems with cysts on my ovaries and just a number of, of, 
of other issues. So me getting pregnant was, it was like a cloud in a far off distance to use, you know, a phrase <laughs> that I used in an earlier episode. Um, it was something that I, I never really saw happening. You know, doctors had said that it was very unlikely. We had gone to fertility treatments, nothing was successful. And now here I am, you know, in the middle of, you know, my life completely unraveling. I'm separated from my husband about five or six weeks prior. I had had, you know, this weekend of just, you know, great sin. And now I am, you know, I'm grappling with the possibility that I may actually be pregnant. And if that is the case, oh my goodness, you know, who is the father? What am I going to do? And anyway, before I get to any of that, I, I'm in my bathroom. I open the pregnancy test. I'm not sure how to read the test. So I open up the instructions, which, you know, is like the size of, you know, a giant American flag. There's so many instructions. And so I finally get to the part that tells you, you know, what you're supposed to do and what the signs are if you're pregnant or not pregnant. And as I'm going through all this, you know, there's just, I have a racing heart and I'm, I'm conflicted and I'm like, oh my God, could this possibly be? And um, so of course I take the, the test and it's, you know, it's positive and I am just at a loss of words and feelings and emotions. I am, I am blown away at the situation that I find myself in. Okay, so it's certain that I am pregnant. I decide that I'm going to have a conversation with Colt. I'm just going to read these parts because this was a very difficult time for me to live. It was a very difficult thing for me to write about. So just bear with me and I'm just going to read this part. All right, so I'm talking to Colt and I say, Colt, I just found out I'm pregnant. I do not think it's yours, but I don't know. I have no way of knowing who the father is. And that's not important at the moment. I don't know what to do. I am not ready to have a baby. Is this even a baby? Can I not have this happen to me? I have been told that life begins at conception. Is that true? Is this a baby? My emotions demand an answer. Hey, it's going to be okay. Calm down. You have time to decide. You do not have to figure this all out right now. What if it's just a bunch of cells forming? Just a bunch of tissue, Colt says with sincere innocence. I did not think I could get pregnant. I did not think it was possible. And now, at the worst possible time in my life, when everything has fallen apart, I get pregnant. This is not fair. This is not the plan. This is not how my life is supposed to unfold. I state and wallow in confusion as I sit at his feet. So at the end of that conversation, I decide to call Ren. I realize that there is a very low possibility that Ren is the father, but I feel like I needed an ally. I needed someone that I had some sort of semblance of a relationship with to hear me out, you know, as I'm thinking through the situation that I'm in. So I call Ren and I tell him what's going on. I tell him, you know, the baby's probably not yours. I've had encounters with other men since we split up three lovers in one weekend, for God's sake. I know the chances are very slim. I trust Ren, we have a history, and I need him to help me figure out this situation. Ren says to me, I don't care who the father is. He's, you know, he's going to come back to Texas and he's going to help me through this. And desperate times call for desperate measures, as the saying goes, and a memory of the tarot card reading surfaces in my mind. Is this the meaning of the four nights? Remember in the tarot card reading, there was one night that was positioned in the in a top spot. And then directly under that night were three additional nights. So I'm, in my mind, I'm seeing like Ren, you know, top spot. And then there are three possibilities of three potential fathers of this child that I may or may not be having. 
I can tell you that the situation I found myself in was completely unexpected and completely overwhelming. I was not in any place to bring a child into this world. And I was very conflicted over what I should do. I had, you know, I had wanted a child early on with Jacob and that didn't happen. And, you know, me not being able to have children contributed greatly to the demise of our marriage. I covered a lot of that in the book. And now I find myself in this unplanned pregnancy with not knowing who the father is. The final subheading in this chapter is called Day of Days. And I'm going to read most of it to you because this is a very difficult time. As I sit here in the waiting room debating my decision, I tell myself this must be done. I am too young. I am not ready. I am not in the right place in my life for this to be happening. After all the fertility treatments and attempts that failed with my soon-to-be ex-husband, why is this happening now? We are separated. My life is way off track, and I have no idea who the father is. As I look at the pro-life material handed to me as I walked into the abortion clinic, I remember when I was trained to participate in these pro-life events. Where in the hell did I go wrong? How did my life get so off track? I hear Landslide by Fleetwood Mac playing on a small radio in the corner of the waiting room, and the lyrics pierce my heart. Moments go by and anxiety consumes me. Well, that's it. They've called my name, and now it is time to end the insanity that has become my life. I walk towards the nurse and then immediately feel the urge to run. I tell her I'm not quite ready. Before I make this lifelong decision, I need to be outside where I can think. I grab Ren's hand and I pull us into the parking lot. We walk past all the would-be do-gooders casting their glares and their judgment at me like invisible stones. We make it across the street, a safe distance from the clinic, but close enough to go back once I build up the nerve to lay on that table. Sitting on a brick ledge of an office tower flower bed, I hear Ren talking to me, encouraging me, saying, I am making the right decision. But his words fall flat. They sound empty and selfish, selfish, as if that is not what I am being. I am deeply troubled by the thought of when life begins. When does it begin? In the womb? At conception? At birth? Somewhere in between? I know the church and pro-lifers say it begins at conception, but I keep repeating in my head what Colt said. It is just tissue. It is just matter. It is just a bunch of cells at this point. What if he is right? Do I really need to complicate my already complicated life further? No one will know. I can end this today and move on with my life, a life that will be a lot less complicated. Oh, if it were that easy. Before I can cry out the proverbial, why God, why? I force myself to go back inside the clinic. I am escorted back to a sterile white room. I am told to undress from the waist down, lay on the table, and someone will be in shortly. I do. Looking around at strange equipment and long steel rods, my nerves and my heart are outside of my body. I am terrified. A minute passes and the door opens. A numb face appears by my side and inserts a device into my lower region. It is a probe to determine how far along I am. You are 11 weeks, she states with her monotone voice. Tears stream over my temples and my hands clutch the side of the table. My eyes open and focus on a poster attached to the ceiling above me. It has three red hot air balloons of varying sizes filling a blue sky, tiny clouds scattered around its edges. My chest is heaving and for a moment, everything fades into nothingness. 
no walls, no ceiling, no people, and no sound. A mirror in the sky comes into view, reflecting a scared girl with tears and swollen eyelids and a trail of bad choices. Her legs are draped in scarlet and she mouths the words, what if this is my only chance? What if this is the only child I will ever have? Startled, I blink away the tears, wipe the sadness from my face, and I know I cannot go through with this. My heart is not okay with not having this baby. I do not know why, but I cannot go through with this. No way, no how. They can keep the money. I am keeping this baby. Who cares if the man I am legally married to is not the father? Who cares if the church frowns upon single mothers? I can do this on my own. I sit up, put my feet on the cold linoleum tiles, and the white sheet falls to the floor. Hastily, I dress, grab my things, and run for the door. Wren sits in the waiting room, sees me, and follows. I run to the car, sobbing. I buckle to the ground, releasing a constrained groan from the depths of my soul. I am broken. I am scared. I am resolved. Leaving the clinic with fear and sheer determination to have this baby, I decided I must get some things in order. Before I can wrestle with any of those thoughts, my mind turns to the line of protesters watching us leave the abortion clinic. It is easy to stand there with those signs and condemn someone whose shoes you have never walked in. I never thought I would be here, and yet my broken life led me here. It is easier to point out sin than to love. A loving person would already be in these women's lives way before they found themselves here. Those signs are the equivalent of giving someone a get well soon card after her head has been blown off. It is too little, too late. Job said, those who are at ease have contempt for the misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. And he is right. Not only do they have contempt, but they are blind to the war being waged against these women, a war that started long before they found themselves at this clinic. Glancing over at Ren as he drives us back to my apartment, I think about the picture I found of his own hidden child in a secret drawer and realize he is incapable of being anyone's father. His willingness to be here with me now is confusing. I do not understand how he could run from a paternity-tested child, but now voluntarily step into a role where he has no legal obligation. He is just here because he wants to be near me, the one who has pushed him away again and again. I know I must do this alone. Warnings I overlooked and missed red flags. First of all, I failed to see that living life on my terms would bring such devastating and severe consequences. I wrestled with my convictions to the point of nearly talking myself into having an abortion. Early on in my Christianity, I had, I had it drilled into my head that life begins at conception. There are verses in the Bible, Psalm 139 specifically, that talks about, I formed you in your mother's womb. It even goes further back than that. God says, I, I, I knew you before you were born. So in my mind, I was trying to justify a way to end this complicated situation without calling it an abortion and without calling it sin. I tried to, you know, I tried to lean real heavy on Colt's words when he's like, what if it's just tissue? What if it's just a bunch of cells forming? And I thought, oh wait, that, you know, that's probably what it is. It's not a baby yet. So I was really wrestling with what the Bible taught, what the church taught, and my circumstance, like what I wanted. I wasn't ready to be a mother. I was in like the worst situation possible in my mind, you know, not knowing who the father is, being separated from my 
from my husband who was a minister in a church and yes he was you know now a professed homosexual and that wasn't a you know a relationship that i could resurrect or repair in any way so in other words my life was in a complete state of just it was a mess it was a mess i was in no way ready to be a mother but when it came down to it when i was in that room in that space and i was at the the point of surrendering these cells right surrendering this beginning of life surrendering this embryo so that my life would be a lot less complicated i couldn't do it i could not go through with it my heart would not allow it now let me just say that this is not the last time that i encounter this wrestling with this conviction uh, if you have had an abortion please know that i have too it wasn't this child but god loves us and there is nothing that we can do other than not believing that he is jesus christ the son of god you know by by rejecting him but by rejecting his holy spirit that is the only unforgivable sin is not believing that he is who he says he is but all the other sins murder homosexuality every other sin cussing i mean big or small every other sin is forgivable by god as long as we confess our sins the bible says that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is God's mercy. That's God's mercy on me. That's God's mercy on you. That is God's mercy on anyone who will take it, who will receive it. Anyway, there are consequences when we live our lives outside of God's designs. And that has been a theme that I've been pounding every episode, I feel like, but it is absolutely true. It just makes God's mercy and his grace so much more sweeter and uh, wonderful when we can see just how depraved <laughs> and wicked our hearts really, really are. Here are some tools to help you avoid the same pitfalls. Never compromise your convictions on the altar of convenience. And if you have any questions as to what convictions are, I have a blog post on that. You can find that on my website. And another thing is never stop going to church. I had stopped going to church because I felt like a big fat sinner and I was a big fat sinner, but church is exactly where I needed to be. There's one part in this, in this book where I talk about how the church feels like a social club full of just perfect people and their spit shined Western Christianity. And that to me is repulsive. That is appalling because in my experience, I, I feel like the church should be more, more like a hospital for people who, you know, we're all broken. We all have sin. We all have struggles in our lives. So it needs to be a place of like reconciling us to God, showing us God's goodness, showing us God's grace. And it makes me very sad that people who are full of sin come into a church and they feel rejected. Christians should be the most loving people on the planet because we are forgiven and it's only by God's grace. It's only through God's grace that we're forgiven. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. So if you're going to a church that's more like a social club, less like a place that's serious about repairing and rebuilding and establishing and, you know, deepening your relationship with God, then I would say find a church that is about those things, because that's where you need to be. A place that's going to hold you accountable, a place that's going to encourage you, a place that's going to help you learn how to overcome sin, how to watch out for your enemy, to help you grow. 
right? That's the kind of place that I believe a true church is. All right, so here's your application. These are the questions you can ask yourself to kind of see if you're going in the right or the wrong direction, okay? First question, where are you compromising God's designs and principles in your life? Some things that are in our culture, some things that our culture celebrates are the things that God condemns. So we need to be very aware of the line between God's ways and what's popular in our culture, because those two rarely align. <laughs> okay. Question two, what steps can you take to stand boldly for God's designs in your area of influence? A lot of times we, we just don't say anything. We just keep our mouth shut because it's easier to, you know, just go with the flow or to not weigh in on these things. But in reality, you are stealing someone's peace. You are stealing someone's opportunity to be reconciled and, and walking with God if they don't understand God's design. So where can you speak up about God's designs where you may have been silent in the past? All right. And the last question is, are there people in your life that need you to speak up now before they find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy? I don't think the time to intervene in a, in a person's life as when they're walking into an abortion clinic. The intervention in that person's life needs to have happened long before they find themselves there. Now, I understand you're saying you're protecting the unborn, and that is true. But you also have to weigh the mother, her circumstance, her feelings. She feels like you don't care about her at all, that you're judging her, that you're condemning her. Okay, so in conclusion, I'm just going to read a part from chapter 12. Chapter 12 is highlighting everything that I've learned walking through these experiences. It says, many people fall away from God and church, but it occurs to me that it is because like me, they do not understand the invisible battle. People fall away for lots of justifiable reasons. Like my mother, she grew disenchanted with the church due to blatant hypocrisy. People, including the church's pastor, professed one thing but lived lives steeped in sin adultery, gossip, sexual immorality, jealousy, quarreling, drunkenness, divisiveness, and all things that are diabolically opposed to Christianity. Attending a church that is full of immoral living is repulsive to most people, and rightfully so. People do not want to be a part of something that is not genuine. Returning to church after what I call my grand awakening, I had many encounters with these feelings. The stench of ungodliness is rampant in the Western church. Materialism, pride, self-righteousness, piety, and worldliness. When you compare today's Christians with the early Christian church in the New Testament, the gap is far and wide. And still, we are called to be a part of the church, love it, pray for it, and not to consider ourselves better than anyone else in it. That is called humility, and it's fundamental to biblical Christianity. Never let someone else's sin keep you from God or his people, which is his church. Hypocrisy in the church is the devil's smokescreen devised to keep you away. And once you recognize it, you can ask God to help you deal with those feelings and then get on with the business of living out your salvation in his church and in this world. So next steps. 
If you are interested in joining me on this journey through Untold Grace, I would love to have you subscribe to this podcast. Also, tell your friends about it. If you'd like more information about me, you can find a link to my website in the show notes. Also, if you would like to read the book, you can order that from Amazon.com or at BarnesandNoble.com.